Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey the Log for Shell Worn Out Knockriner. Aren't we all? On today's episode, as you might have just guessed, we've got a quick update on the Log for Shell vulnerabilities. Uh, before we dive into the world of carding forums and stolen credit card information. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and swipe on in. Swipe right or left, Mark? <laughs> Decline. Well, I don't know what that means, Corey. What are you <laughs> exactly. even talking about? All right. <laughs> sure. So let's start this week with an update from our favorite ongoing story, it seems, where in last week's episode, if you remember, we talked about how the CISA director stated that as of then, there had not been any known intrusions using the log4shell vulnerabilities. So log4shell being the most critical 10.0 CVSS score uh, vulnerability in the log4j2 library, the one that is absolutely trivial to exploit and gives you full remote code execution on a vulnerable system. So last week, or I guess two weeks ago now, by the time you're listening to this, they CISA said there hadn't been any intrusions. But now this week, or I guess technically last week at the time that you're listening to this, <laughs> uh, researchers at Checkpoint appear to have discovered that APT35, which is the Iranian state-sponsored hacking group, because we always remember what number is what APT actor, right? I mean, to be honest, at this point, I do remember a few of them. Like, I know APT 35 is what's, the Iranian What's 24 one. or 18? Okay, those I don't know. Um, but <laughs> I'm just teasing. Anyways, uh, APT 35, which is the Iranian-backed hacking group, uh, they found them using Log4Shell to drop a new modular PowerShell-based backdoor, uh, which Checkpoint are calling Charm Power. Uh, because I guess APT35's alternative name is Charming Kitten. And, okay, again, pause for the uh, the laughter. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help it. I'm used to it by now, but I still can't help it. I think, honestly, I think it's intentional that, I, I don't know, so every security company... Fancy bears and charming kittens. They're so cute, these, these state-sponsored threat actors. So every like security organization, it seems like, has their own name for these groups. That's why you have to say APT35, a.k.a. charming kitten, a.k.a. Uh, TA, whatever, whatever. Um, and whoever, I don't remember who's the one that coins these like animal name ones, but I, I'm starting to think that they actually do it in a way to make them seem like unassuming and like not scary i guess maybe to like i don't know if i were like a a sophisticated like soviet russian hacker or someone out of like iran <laughs> who's trying to hack another country like i might be a little miffed if suddenly everyone starts calling me charming kitten or fancy bear or something yeah if i were the good guys this would be a fun way to troll the bad guys is what i think you're saying right yeah <laughs> ha ha you little cute kitties keep doing your bull crap <laughs> Although I don't know if that's a good strategy, but I get, I, I get you. It, 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 it less panic, unassuming. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, so uh, Checkpoint actually went into a bit of detail about these this attack, um, how they were delivering the malware, and then a bit of detail on uh, Charm Power itself too, uh, which we'll get into. But first and foremost, so 
If you remember, the log for shell vulnerability is basically a exploit of the JNDI, the Java naming directory, oh crap, I forgot the I, whatever thing, where basically you can do lookups, where when it goes to log a message, if it sees this special string in it, it will attempt to look up the value of that string. And the vulnerability lied in how they did these lookups uh, to LDAP servers and a few other exploit paths as well that basically resulted in the vulnerable server attempting to look up this variable and ultimately downloading actual Java code and then executing it on the server. Um, So in the case of uh, Charming Kittens, uh, they were found exploiting the vulnerability in the user agent and HTTP authorization headers in requests that they sent to vulnerable servers, which on day zero, this is what we were seeing in our HoneyNet as well. Basically, as soon as like the cat got let out of the bag for this one and people realized how easy it was to exploit, they started sticking these JNDI strings in just about every single field in web requests that would potentially be logged on a server. Like it makes sense for a web server to keep track of the the user agent, so the info about the browser that's connecting to it. Uh, same, well, I mean, I would hope it's not logging authorization headers because that means you're effectively logging authentication material. But I guess Oops. if you're already <laughs> sticking it everywhere, you might as well stick it in those spots too because all it takes is for the server to log it and then boom, you gain code execution basically. Um, so in this case, they were using user agent and HTTP authorization headers. Uh, and then that jo- that JNDI lookup uh, caused the vulnerable server to then make a request out to a LDAP server under APT35's control which then served up a basically an, a Java file that runs PowerShell with a pretty simple command that all it did was go out and grab a PowerShell file from an S3 bucket and then execute it. So I thought that was actually interesting right there that they're actually using Amazon AWS to host this malicious code. Like we see when it comes to dropping malware onto victims, uh, they'll often, you know, use stolen servers or compromised like WordPress sites. It was weird in my, I mean, it's not weird. We've seen it plenty of times recently, but it's interesting pointing out that they're using actual AWS infrastructure for this, meaning like I can't imagine the country of Iran or their national intelligence unit went out and set up an AWS account and they're hosting it out of there. So it makes me wonder, are they using like stolen information to set up the account did they compromise someone's aws account and then set up a bucket in there it's kind of interesting yeah hard hard to know but uh yeah i would assume the same we assume smart threat actors sometimes avoid using cloud resources uh for for the reasons that researchers said that but yeah I, I usually you do have to I think for AWS you do it's, it's kind of like setting up a Gmail they don't let you do it without a little bit of validation at least an email address I think so it, it trying to think you know, unless you already have dummy burner accounts it's it's hard to set up without giving a little of yourself away and it's not like AWS lets you pay in Bitcoin so there's still like financial transactions tied to it it's interesting yeah. how they potentially cover their tracks with this is what I'm getting at yeah could be like you say though a compromised legit account yeah because that is something a lot of threat actors do is yeah. they'll you know use these although i imagine that's so hard mark it's hard <laughs> to find an s3 bucket that's open or anything i doubt i don't think that's ever happened in the history of time yeah, correct but even if it's not just a straight up <laughs> open bucket like 
I imagine it's relatively trivial to go and find compromised AWS credentials somewhere on the dark web yeah. and then use those accounts. I bet and they're sold. Abuse them. Yeah. Yep. Um, so anyways, that S3 bucket, the, the PowerShell script it grabs, um, it's, you know, a relatively basic backdoor that you would expect. Like the main module has four main functions. It'll check its network connectivity just by making a request to Google. Uh, gathers basic information from the, the host it's on, like the operating system version, the host name, etc. Um, it'll go and grab command and control domains from the same S3 bucket, which was also interesting. Like that's a single point of failure in this case, where as soon as that bucket gets taken down by, by Amazon, which it has, basically all this is gone. And then it retrieves and decrypts and executes additional modules too. So, I mean, it's so one of the findings that Checkpoint actually put into this was that it seemed like it was hastily put together. Like the. That's what I was going to say. It's a pretty smart thing, but at the same time, they kind of said it was rushed and easy to find because of it. So it, it, it made me think that good made it easy to find but imagine if they didn't rush it this could have been yeah anyways keep going even like the the exploit that it did that original log for shell one was actually a pre-built exploit kit that was on github for a while Open it's source yeah, it's been taken down <laughs> uh but you can still get to it from archive.org if you want to it was i think the first one that at least i saw that got put up i didn't realize it had been taken down another victim or potentially benefit of microsoft slash github's policy of taking down pocs yeah. now we still can't tell. <laughs> As you can see, though, you can't scrub everything from the internet, though, because it is still available on archive.org. Yeah. Um, when it comes Go to back machine, yeah. When it comes to some of the ancillary modules that it loads up, um, it's got ones that'll. Um, go and gather more information like installed applications, running processes, take screenshots, and then a module to basically clean up its tracks. So, again, all you would expect from a typical backdoor Trojan. Um, now, when it comes to attribution, like when I first see all this, these details, I think, okay, I, this doesn't sound like a nation state sponsored hacker. This sounds like random script kitty that set up an AWS account and used an open source tool. Um, but Checkpoint actually did a decent job, in my opinion, of trying to make attribution to APT35. Like some of the things they saw was the logging format and syntax used within that PowerShell module is identical to some Android malware that's associated with APT35. Like the, the parameters it passes, the names of the parameters, the format is literally identical. Even like how they write logs in there, like the words they use, the syntax again, the same. Um, identical parameters in the command and control communications. There is actually... Uh, request URI overlaps between the API for the command and control API for this attack and that Android malware, meaning when it goes to the command and control server and does like, I don't know, get info or get attack or something like that, like there was a lot of overlap there to the point that um, they noticed you could actually make requests for the Android malware to the command and control server of this attack as well. And some of them succeeded. So it's like they reused a lot of code also. And then they also used a lot of the same hosting providers and delivery services too. Um, and then the last kind of interesting tidbit from the write-up was, so they noted that the response times from the command and control servers indicated that it's probably a manual process. Like a, there's a human operator that's deciding based off of the phone homes whether to send additional modules to it. And, you know, I personally tend to think anytime there's a botnet, like most of it's probably automated. 
But it's interesting to think that there may be a human behind the scenes, like watching what's going on, or maybe even records at a database and flagging ones to deliver more threats to. I would suggest that even in the botnet, maybe it has to do like uh, I've read the attribution. And the reason checkpoints report is very detailed for people that want code samples. You should check it out. But maybe th this is purely my hypothesis, Mark. But I bet you state-sponsored botnets are more manual, and cybercriminal botnets are more automated. Like a cybercriminal is usually worried about, you know, smash and grabs. You know poning computers, spreading it widely. Maybe they want the botnet resource, but once the botnet gets on a computer, they can use it to automatically install a bunch of shit and automatically... Beep, <laughs> beep number one for Corey. And automatically exfiltrate a bunch of stuff like keys. <laughs> Almost again. And they, 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 yeah, I'm, a, I'm horrible. And they don't really spend much time cleaning up or hiding, and that's why the noise of automation probably doesn't bug them. I bet you state-sponsored actors, they, I mean, we know they use botnets. They've done so before. Uh, I bet you they might make it more manual in the same way that a, a enterprise with a security team wouldn't remediate automatically, and that they don't want to trigger alarms, so they want to take it a step at a time. So it just makes logical sense to me that even in a botnet situation, that a state-sponsored actor might be more careful because they're they're just trying to be more stealthy. Yep, that does make sense. And they so Checkpoint actually noted too that historically APT thirty-five doesn't care a whole lot about covering their tracks, at least in terms of infrastructure and infrastructure reuse. Like you'll see other APTs, other state-sponsored hackers, like go to lengths to like use Tor and stolen VPCs and then, you know, hopping through seven proxies or whatever just to hide their tracks. But APT35 seems to reuse a lot of their infrastructure. Uh, but yeah, I guess it makes sense to have a state-sponsored group maybe give it a little more fine touch as you're picking your targets versus... It could just be motivate or like the actual... Not the motivation, but what they're doing. Maybe state-sponsored will get more crash and grab if that's the goal versus if they're just trying to, to do a long-term campaign. Yep. Anyways, interesting. Yeah, very interesting. No details on the, was, the classes of victims in this case, at least. But still interesting seeing the first, at least widely publicized or relatively big, attack using the log4shell vulnerability. And, you know, while the CISA director did say that they hadn't seen anything then they did note that this is going to be a vulnerability that sticks around with us for quite some time and in fact i just saw news today as we're recording this that the white house is actually having a, a meeting with several executives from major technology firms to discuss vulnerabilities and open source projects like this and potentially i don't know our nation's response to it so anyways something tells me that this is far from the last story that we're going to see involving log for shell um now moving on to the next one uh that we have today so one of the older categories for dark web and underground marketplaces that we tend to see are carding forums uh where basically cyber criminals will sell stolen credit card and associated information to buyers out there Basically, if you go out with a, a skimmer or breach a website and manage to get unencrypted credit card information, you're probably, at least as a, not necessarily sophisticated, but smart cyber criminal, probably not going to use those yourselves. You'll turn around and sell them on a marketplace to other people for them to turn around and use the, uh, the financial information. 
So last January, the largest and longest running carding marketplace called Joker's Stash shut down voluntarily after having made more than a billion dollars in helping sell stolen information. Typically how these marketplaces work is they use like a, um, oh man, why is my brain not working right now? Um, a, you know, where you give someone else a third party intermediary money and they hold on to it to make sure that both sides enact their side of the deal and then give it out. Starts with an E anyways, brain not working. Um, typically you will buy credits on the, the site if you're a buyer and then use those credits in order to acquire stolen information. And then if you're a seller, uh, you receive those credits and you can cash them out for actual cash, typically Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency in this case. And the marketplace... And by the way, oh, maybe you're about to say it. I, I was going to say, and if you're the marketplace, you get a percentage yep. of this as the middleman. As the middleman, that maybe that's where you're Make going. sure that the transaction actually occurs correctly. So they do a bit of work. Yeah. Like it's not like the and they also, by the way, it's not just a transaction. I would say the reason people go to the marketplaces is for the ba validation of legit sellers and buyers. Like you're you're dealing with criminals, literally, and it's easy to put up something for sale and then deliver crap, not something real. So part of how they trust the the site makers is. They are, be, before they even let you pay, they have validated that whatever's being sold is really that. <laughs> Sorry, keep Yeah, going exactly. That and the buyer has the ability to validate themselves that it is correct. And only after then does the money get unlocked and the seller is able to receive it. So a lot of stuff behind the scenes to allow them to earn their cut. Still, a billion dollars is a huge amount of money. I think they were around for almost a decade, though. So that is a fair bit of cash. Um, so Joker's stash or Joker's stash's shutdown came with a warning that was actually kind of interesting. Uh, the the administrator basically warned young, as he called them, cyber gangsters, not to lose themselves in the pursuit of money, as all the money in the world will never make you happy, which was very philosophical from a cyber criminal running a massive carding website that had potentially made a billion dollars. I may be cynical, but I think the main reason all of these eventually get out is they also know their chance of you You will be caught eventually. Yeah. And the longer you stay, the higher that risk goes up. So it may not just be happy there. That may be an alternate message. If you do this for too long, all that money you have won't help you when you go to jail, lose it all. In the case of Joker Stash, actually, they may have had a slightly different reason, too, because it turns out their administrator uh, back in December, so right before they shut down, posted that they had actually caught COVID-19 pretty early on and <laughs> spent a week in the hospital for it. And so you maybe they had like a, a come to Jesus moment and realized they should get out of this and <laughs> go live their life as best they can. I'm quitting my job and doing what I love. <laughs> With my millions of dollars i'm quitting my criminal job yeah and opening up an art studio um so god <laughs> that would be interesting uh anyways after joker stashes or joker's stash shut down another carding forum called UniCC became really the marketplace of choice and pretty quickly scooped up all of the old market share and sales volume I think it only took a little bit of time for them to start making $100 million a year in revenue from these card sales. Um, so that had been going on for around a year or so until last week when UniCC's administrators posted a message that they too were voluntarily shutting down. And one of the quotes from their message was, 
Uh, don't build any conspiracy theories about us leaving. It is a weighted decision. We are not young, and our health does not allow us to work like this any longer. We give you 10 days to spend your balance. We will continue updates during this period. And they also noted that all the sellers will be paid uh, down to the penny of anything that they're owed. Uh, at the same time, their sister site, Lux Socks, also pulled the plug. And this is also on the back of quite a few other dark web marketplaces shutting down recently, too. So I thought that was interesting. Like, it seems like a kind of a trend of some of these carding marketplaces and dark web marketplaces basically voluntarily shutting down. Like we see ones like, you know, Dream Market and the Silk Road that have been taken over by the FBI or other organizations run for a bit and then shut down once they're able to identify all the customers. But these are just voluntarily shutting the doors. Now, this is after they've made hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, so it's not like they're, you know, broke. But I guess it's probably what you're saying that, you know, they're getting out while they're getting still good before they end up getting caught. And there's other there's other reasons too. Uh, I'll let you, Brent. I mean, I actually feel like carding is starting to drop in in profits for these guys, anyways, for technical reasons we can talk about. So how effective are these carding or these stolen credit cards anyway? Because, you know, we're lagging quite a bit behind the UK here in the US, but we are at least moving towards chips and cash registers, for example. Like, is a stolen credit card information still useful? Yeah, I, I, I think it's it is still useful in the US, but much less so. I think everyone knows if you're global, chip and pin took over a long time ago. And in, in Europe, in Japan, in some Asia countries, it's literally chip and pin, meaning there is no magnetic stripe. Uh, every card has a chip, which makes it really you, you can't you can't really steal the data and just copy a card in the same way. It's much more technical, also known as EMV, by the way. Uh, so I, I think it's just harder for them to steal a card and ef effectively duplicate it anymore. There's still online ways to spoof it, but it's it's much harder. Uh, I do. I, I wish we actually we're technically mostly chip and signature still here in the U.S. Unfortunately, I still don't think we fully. Like our cards are now capable of chip and pin because they have a pin, but usually a lot of companies like my credit card, despite the chip is still a signature based credit card. You like, it doesn't make me put in a pin for credit only for debit, which I think is kind of silly. Uh, and even worse, the magnetic stripe is still there for retailers that haven't updated yet. But, but either way, I think you're right. I think it really has to do with chip and pin making it harder. That may be temporary though, right? Like with every time we've had an advance in security, bad guys new, find new ways around it. So one day there could be some new finding that have, you know, make stolen credit cards a little easier again. But I, I think that finally, the most valuable credit cards five years ago were US ones because we were the dummies that didn't have widespread chip and pin. And now we do. It makes sense that it's kind of going away a bit or at least becoming harder for bad guys. And I guess even chip and pin doesn't solve the, the card not present transactions, the CNP ones, which are basically anything online. Like it's not like I'm inserting my chip yeah. into my computer when I go on Amazon and buy another. That's why online is still pretty easy. Yeah. Um, so actually, yeah, all that's protecting you there is the CV and your address. <laughs> a fun fact that I learned today, actually, 
Um, What's the CVV? No. CVV. Yeah, CVV. That's it. There you go. Um, fun fact today that I learned: uh, the reason that magnetic stripes are still on a lot of these chip cards, even in countries where they are basically fully chip and pin, is because the ATM machine learns that it is a EMV card, a chip and pin card, by the magnetic stripe. And so, if it didn't exist, oh, wow. it wouldn't know to actually. I didn't do that. realize yeah. that. Uh, I learned that today. I also, I also wondered, and I didn't know if this is where you're going. That if there are still places that sometimes underneath the cabinet have the carbon copy because the power still goes out. And the problem with our new modern life is if the power goes out, no one could buy anything if you didn't literally have the carbon copy. I guess that has nothing to do with the magnetic stripe that imprints the number of the card. But the fact I think that's why online transactions still work because it's still possible to put in a number and information like the CVV and expiration date and get a transaction through a processor. Yeah, 100%. So there is still at least value in stolen cards, even if they are trending down. Like value enough that there's even some marketplaces still opening up freshly. So back in 2021, a new marketplace called All World Cards opened up shop with an inventory of a few million cards for sale. And the interesting thing with them is uh, as a way to kind of publicize that they were open for shop, they actually uh, leaked 1 million cards and associated info, like <laughs> ad email addresses, home addresses, phones, CVV numbers wow. on a bunch of dark web and underground marketplaces. Pretty crazy criminal marketing. Yeah. And uh, actually, a few firms that analyzed this breach found that with random sampling, anywhere from 27 to 50% of the cards were still valid Word. at this time. So, I mean, <laughs> if you imagine... So cards on that website, they sell for between three to five bucks on average. A million cards for free that they just give away as advertisement. That's quite a big uh, chunk of advertising right there. But I mean, by the way, this is just a joke. Maybe carding's going away because why would I bother trying to find 10 people that probably have low balances anyways, because all the prices have gone up (laughs) when I could just hack crypto wallets and get tens of millions at a time since... Crypto wallets seem to be a dime a dozen as far as security vulnerabilities. (laughs) Yes, I'm with you on that. And it was actually kind of interesting as I was looking through some of these stolen cards. A lot of them are listed as debit cards and not credit cards, which I mean, I actually not huge balances. Some people might, but some people may not. Who knows? Maybe you got someone in there that keeps all of their money. I I remember when I was a 23 year old father, no one would be excited by getting my debit (laughs) card with the balance. I usually, the last three days before payday, I was looking for that payday. What do you mean? You can't even afford a frosty with this stolen card? This was back in my early fatherhood when I was really young that uh, my treat for the week was getting French toast sticks from Burger King. Burger King King French toast sticks. Now I don't know if I love them, but back then that was big spending. Oh man, I know what I'm doing for breakfast this weekend. You just gave me a nostalgia bomb. (laughs) But anyways, so it does seem like these marketplaces are trending in a way that is making them go away. Uh, voluntarily. Uh, I'm sure the FBI and other law enforcement agencies are still actively attempting to infiltrate these organizations. In fact, UNICC had an issue last year where a bunch of their domain proxies that they used to get to the site were taken down by the FBI. Um, And I mean, we've seen historically the FBI and other law enforcement agencies loves to do that because they're able to take control of the servers 
make it look like it's still running catch a lot of bad guys and then catch a lot yeah. of the the users that are actually using the site before they take it down and then arrest a million people it's the same as turning some of the folks that they've caught before like sabu from lolsec yep who i believe was a decarding at the beginning either way though i mean it is still obviously there's marketplaces out there so uh i don't know what the advice is here if you ever see fraudulent transactions hey. on your card make sure you switch that thing real quick and i guess do better than me at checking your actual credit card statements regularly instead of potentially waiting my advice is is a pain in the butt as it is if you're good on credit and you don't get new cards often which i hope everyone's blessed enough to be in that place freeze your credit Mm -hmm. uh it's a pain in the butt if you want to buy a new car or a new house but i uh, for all three credit agencies my credit is always frozen Uh, I guess that doesn't help you find malicious transactions on credit you already have, but at the very least, it helps people from opening new credit, you know, that they... Yeah, I second that. identity fraud. It's free, and you said it's a pain in the butt. It is about... It took me probably 10 minutes of work to unfreeze them with each of the three bureaus last time I had to do a finance check. If you have a credential manager like me and Mark recommend all the time, it's mostly just remembering the trend, remembering your credentials for something you never go to. Those three credit bureaus or the TransUnion and all the others, Equifax. Uh, and the second part is finding the place on your site to automatically unfreeze it. But like you say, it's a pain in the butt only for lazy people that don't want to do all the searches for the 15 minutes to do it. It's pretty easy if you store everything properly and don't lose it. And the good news is it's free now, courtesy of Equifax, completely uh, ruining everything. It turns out if the companies don't actually protect our data, we can get them to pay to not... <laughs> <laughs> to at least put some protection. It's in. funny that we, have, uh, that we ever paid for them not to let criminals open accounts under our and name. Now, yes, looking back, it is funny <laughs> that this was ever a situation that required money to do, but... I'm sure we'll say the same of uh, $105 aspirins from hospitals one day. Oh, man, I hope so, but I'm not as sure on that one, unfortunately. <laughs> Anyways, we're digressing and wasting your time. I think that's the news for this week, right? Yeah. Thanks, guys. Big takeaway for this one, <laughs> just maybe take a second to go check your credit card transactions uh, and uh, make sure that you haven't been the victim of one of these. And other than that, yep. Yeah. And celebrate, celebrated uh, even if it wasn't a takedown, a, a bad site that's gone. Hooray! Less cyber criminals out there, <laughs> or at least ones on vacation that are opening their art shop. Yes, exactly. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Four Four Three Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is Corey, the Log for Shell worn out knock grinder. Aren't we all? On today's episode, as you might have just guessed, we've got a quick update on the Log4Shell vulnerabilities. Uh, Before we dive into the world of carding forums and stolen credit card information. Uh, With that, let's go ahead and swipe on in. Swipe right or left, Mark. (laughs) Decline. Well, I don't know what that means, Corey. What are you (laughs) even talking about? All right. 
Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at Secadept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.